At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields related to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some important issues of our times. Today, we're chatting with our seed expert, Bill McDormand, as he shares some seed wisdom and discusses thoughts and concerns that might occupy the minds of those of us who are saving seeds. Welcome to the show today, Bill. Hello, Greg. It's always great to be with you. Yes, right back at you. So one of the things we're doing tonight for the live edition, which is happening on April 23rd, uh, 2019, we want to take your questions. So those of you that are listening live, please shoot us over your questions and we will get to them. In the meantime, Bill McDormand. We've had some exciting stuff going on in the past couple of weeks. You guys just finished you just finished grain school in Prescott, Arizona, and I think you have another one coming up soon. Tell us about what that was about. Grain school is an evolution of our seed schools. You know, I have realized, I guess, and really starting to put into practice the fact that about 70% of what we eat comes from heritage grain, or comes from grain. Oh, right. Especially if you consi- consider how much... You know, uh, the American diet, a big portion of it is meat, of course, but almost all that meat, whether it's beef or poultry, is fed by grains now. So grains themselves make up a huge part of our diet. And so, you know, we got to thinking about the local food movement and how wonderful and, and expansive and incredible it's become. But that's mostly just the vegetables at this point. And right. so, you know, we've just decided, I guess, that we need the cake. <laughs> the vegetables are icing on the cake. We need the we need the cake, and you know that's how it started. But it's become its own world. I mean, it is so fascinating, it's so colorful, and so beautiful. You know, I would suggest to anybody out there that loves to garden that's never grown grains um, to try it. Uh, first of all, most of them are self-pollinating, which means that you can save seeds easily, as easily as you can your tomatoes or peppers or lettuce, say. And so it makes it really easy to save seeds, even from uh, small amounts of plants, even one plant, if you have it, the seeds could be good. And you really, you know, we're not worried much at all about cross-pollination, you know, keeping things straight. At this point, I'd love to see something cross because the grains I'm growing are all older and heritage and they all taste good. And I mean, it's really hard to get them to do that. And to learn how to hand pollinate grains is a whole nother story. So, so consider it easy and fun and exciting and colorful. My Greg, my purple Tibetan barley. It's oh. just now starting to turn purple. And I, it's just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's like having amber waves of grain in your own backyard. And yeah. I don't know, maybe it's primordial, but if, every time I go out there, I just get this incredible feeling, you know, when I start to see it. So that's, that uh, we the- had a three-day school. 
I was just going to say, we had a three-day school to try to introduce people to this. And uh, we have people on all levels where they're, you know, you definitely don't have to be a farmer or do this large scale to enjoy small grains. Um, you can get, we have some data in maybe seven loaves of bread from a 100-square-foot bed of wheat. And so everybody that has any size garden at all could probably afford to do that. And just think about how much if you learn how to make your own bread from your own wheat that you grew. Uh, just think about how fun that would be, especially on special occasions. And so we did right, wheat. That, we right? showed, uh, uh, yeah, we show in our grain school, we showed people how to uh, make bread, their own bread, sourdough breads. We showed them how to make their own sourdough wood-fired oven pizzas. We, you know, we, the whole workshop was eating. We would sit down for a lecture and then we'd get up and go do something that we would prepare to eat. We rolled our own fresh oats for breakfast. It just was a great fun. And then we were blessed to have Dr. Gary Nabin come and speak for two days during the school. He's always been a supporter of bars. And and if you haven't read any of Dr. Nabin's books, I highly recommend it. I, you know, I think I've seen his name on, as author on at least 30 of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And so, I don't, you know, where do you start, where our food came from? There's so many. But anyway, he came to give us his latest words of wisdom, which were just wonderful uh, to be around him. And so, yeah, all in all, the school was a great success. Um, our next one is going to be near the end of July in Albuquerque, where we get a tap back into some of that thousand-year-old agriculture that those guys are living on. And we're going to have some wonderful teachers, uh, guest teachers and presenters from there, the Albuquerque Museum is one of our partners, and so you can go to RockyMountainSeeds.org, our webpage, and read up about that. Nice. So tell me, you've been doing grains, and I think that the Tibetan barley was one of the ones that we had at the Great American Seed Up, right? Yes. Yeah, So you, you and you've been doing grains where you're at. What In the past couple of years up there in Cornville, Arizona, what have you grown in grain and eaten? Wow. Well, I've, I have not grown and eaten a lot of my own grains yet. I've been doing this for about a, almost two years, and uh -huh. I'm learning like everyone else. And so now I have really good crops of uh, what I call winter grains. I planted these last October uh -huh. here in Cornville. I think it was October 15th, and I've got uh, bluebird durum. I've got oats, rye, Tibetan purple barley, and einkorn growing in my yard. And so, uh, and they're all doing wonderfully. And what's so nice about growing grains through the winter in a place like Arizona is that we almost don't have to water them. They just take care of themselves on the local moisture. They slow way down through the winter. Mm -hmm. And when things start to, to warm up in the spring, they just shoot up and then we expect a harvest by the end of June, maybe early July when it starts to get really hot. So it makes it really easy to grow them. And so I'm really looking forward to actually having enough of those grains that I mentioned uh, for the first time to actually eat them here. Well, nice, nice. Well, and last time I was up there, we made tortillas? Oh, yeah, we made, I had um, corn that I grew last year that we had home-grown, fresh-ground corn tortillas, and we did that also at grain school. Cool. That was good. What's going on in the, while we prod people that are here, there's about 20 people out there listening. What questions do you have for us on the live version? 
What's going on in the seed world at this point, Bill? Well, it continues to consolidate on one side, continues to try to be more restrictive worldwide. We kind of, I try to keep my finger on the pulse of what, you know, basically what started out as some of our biggest corporations and what they're doing uh, to try to get restrictive rules into countries that want to take part in world trade agreements. And in order to do that, they have to sign over their country's ability uh, to regulate, say, genetically modified crops or other things that are patented. In other words, they have to allow those things into their countries. And oftentimes there's laws that are worded that make it really difficult then for local farmers to continue with their long-held seed practices. And so so that, that continues to happen on one side. On the other side, however, there's, you know, the grassroots movement is uh, growing with, by leaps and bounds. There are more seed libraries, more seed exchanges, more people growing and saving their own seeds in this country, I believe, than ever before. Call that a way to alleviate some of the the stress and uncertainty of the modern world. I don't, or people just are getting into it because it's so much fun and so ab- abundant and rewarding. But we seem to see a lot of that also. I just uh, read some news. There's more and more news every day about the possible ill health effects of glyphosate or as commonly known as Roundup. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and more and more cities and counties and now even states are considering um, restrictions. And that will seriously affect the seed world in that about 80% now of the crops that have been genetically modified have been modified so that they can be sprayed with Roundup. And so there'll be a secondary effect in the seed market. It will be what things will have to be re-questioned. So, so that's a really interesting thing that's happening also. You mentioned Roundup, and, I, and we have a question from Tony in Kearney, Michigan. Loves taking the seed-saving class, been saving vegetable seeds ever since, and sharing. Is any, do you know of any research about chlorine dioxide as a remediation for Roundup in soil? Stephanie Steneff of MIT has said it is the only thing she knows that can break down glyphosate in the human body. Do you know anything about that? Boy, I have not, but it wouldn't surprise me that there's new research about it. Huh, that's great. You know, be careful of your sources, you know, and try to get authoritative ones before uh, you spread things like that. Roundup does not break down in the soil, and I'm not sure I would put anything in my soil even if it did have traces around them until yeah. I was really sure I wasn't doing more damage in some other way. I mean, it's just the soil web is so fragile and so diverse. Yep. It's hard to tell, you know, what works or what doesn't unless it's a totally natural product. But, yeah. what, you know, it'd be great if we found found a silver bullet to some of this. Right. And chlorine dioxide is chlorine. That's from my limited research that I've done here in the past Three minutes. Yeah, we're, yeah, so, and chlorine is pretty significant. So I don't know that I'd want to be putting that more of that, yeah, in the soil. Doesn't it act like a salt, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't salt. want to put salt, salt in your soil. Right. Huh. Exactly. Interesting. And remember that your question about your yard and what you're doing is the most important thing there is, yeah. you know, and I've always tried to honor that. So we'll try to help you out however we can here tonight. Janice Montgomery in Cottonwood. Welcome, Janice. Do you know any tomato breeders working on varieties that have resistance to curly top virus? Oh, that's a that's an interesting question well, that, to you because we just found a new supplier of tomato seeds, right? Yeah, that a new old one. Um, there, Janice, there's lots of people working on uh, resistance to curly top, and where the best research is being done, I can't tell you at this point. 
There are varieties on the market that are advertised as curly top, you know, resistant. However, most of those are hybrid, and which makes saving seeds from them in your own yard and adapting them to where you live in Arizona a, a more difficult. However, I've got a great friend in New Mexico who keeps sending me samples of some of these tomatoes with the idea that we uh, get uh, a bunch of people to grow them and all save the seeds from them, even though they're hybrids, and start uh, selecting our own adapted varieties from those and go through the six or eight years it might take to stabilize those lines with curly top resistance. And so that way we could have our own, you know, local varieties and pass them around again. I'm a, you know, as everyone probably knows, I'm a big seed saver fan. And so I'm, you know, hybrids are, uh, it's not impossible to save seeds from. It just makes it more difficult. But there's people out there that have the time and energy, and it's really not that difficult. It just takes a number of years. So I've started on that. And I've got a variety called Trop C that I'm um, growing this year again for the second year to try to do that. Cool. What's that process look like? What, the the process of dehybridizing? No, the process of figuring out how to, you know, make a variety that's, you know, that's resistant to something like that. That's easy. You have, you know, or difficult. You have to have the disease in your yard or somewhere near you. That's the only real way to tell. And you grow it and you save seeds only from those varieties that uh, that make it without the curly top. And you can see it, you know. We've been taught, I mean, there are diseases that, actually kill or destroy a whole crop. But if you look close, and, and, and sometimes it looks like a huge disaster, but if you have, a, you know, several plants or a lot of plants, and if you look closely, you start to see gradations. In other words, some plants have no resistance whatsoever or are taken out, and others actually are doing okay, but they're still stunted or they don't produce tomatoes or whatever. And so, you know, the idea is that you find a place with the disease, the disease pressure and grow out uh, enough plants to find those that have a natural resistance to it or have more resistance to it. Right. And so, you know, with my trop C, I'm not really saving it right now for resistance to curly top because I've never had it. What I'm trying to do is dehybridize it. I'm going to keep seed from each of the, the uh, lines, so to speak, each generation. I've got my F2 generation this year, then Next year, if I save seeds again, that'll be the F3s. Next year, I'll be the F4s. I'll save seeds from all of those. And what I'm looking for first is just a really great tomato. I'm looking for a trop C tomato. It's kind of a medium-sized beefsteak. And once I get a tomato that consistently produces that, what my friend in New Mexico, and I would tell you his name, except he doesn't like to have it mentioned (laughs) very much. There you go. For his own private reasons, but what he expects is that just about the time we complete this project, Curly Top will get everywhere, and we'll and and so we'll, we're going to meet it at the path, so to speak, and then we'll get to try our open pollinated varieties. We'll have to grow them out in large numbers and find those varieties that still have the disease resistance in them. So that's sort of the plan. I mean, what else do we have to work on? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like everything. So we got we got several questions about saving seeds. And, you know, we cover this a lot. 
in our, you know, in our classes and that kind of stuff. But let's just review real quickly. The best way to save seeds, once you, once you have those seeds, what's the best way to preserve them long term? And then I'll go a little bit deeper with Ann's question here in a minute. Well, you know, I, it can be simple. I mean, we know that because there's numerous documented examples of seeds being found, especially in the Southwest, in kivas and, and clay pots that are hundreds of years old, we think. You know, some of them as old as 600 years old. And so, you know, maybe we re- we overthink this a bit. That's what I try to say in our seed saving classes, is that if you keep them cool, dark, and dry, you have a really good chance of them lasting quite a long time. You know, so what does that mean? Well, cool means below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. We know that because of tests done for a NASA mission to Mars. They've put out contracts to Utah State University to figure out at what temperature in warp-wise seeds start to die off faster. And they say pretty stable for quite a while as long as you keep them below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's what cool means. You know, um, seeds do not like to be in direct sunlight. It can trigger them. You know, so that's especially what dark means. Keep them out of the sunshine for sure. And they seem to last longer, especially if they're consistently dark or if they're in a, you know, in the back of a closet and it's not totally dark, but they're not getting bright and then dark and bright then in dark. There are theories that that helps to stimulate their growth and and might shorten their lifetime. And then you want to keep them dry. And that can be a problem for people that don't live in the arid mountain west, you know, where you have higher humidity. Say you live in a place that gets 70, 80% humidity in the summertime. You're on one of the coasts or in the upper Midwest or something. And so that's where you probably need a little bit of help. You know, the the go-to thing for many seed savers are those little desiccant packets, those silicon packets that come in electronics. You can ask around or have your friends save them or whatever, but those help absorb moisture out of seeds stored in, say, jars or airtight bags. And so you might want to do that. Out west here, you know, in 28 years running my little seed company, I never had a problem. You know, I always made sure that I did not. And this is a nice trick is uh, just don't package up your seeds on a rainy day or one of those really, you know, humid days. And uh, because, you know, almost everywhere the uh, humidity can vary incredibly. I always, I like to, I remember the day I was driving through Phoenix on, and I heard the radio and the, the announcer said that the humidity in Phoenix today is zero. <laughs> and I thought, you know, is that possible <laughs> to have no moisture in the air? I don't, you know, with plants around and stuff, I don't know, but it was a hot Yeah, that's day. a funny one. This point. And, and so uh, 12, 14% humidity might be perfect. I mean, that's, Mm-hmm. the target amount that we're shooting for with our grains when we store them long term. So I, I found that the best way to store things for me, I store them in the freezer. Obviously, it's dark in there. And then I put them in a glass jar, a sealed glass jar. And, the, you know, that's a, that's significantly dry in there as long as you're packing them on a dry day. Yeah, yeah that's good. You know, again, you want to remember that when you take them back out – to let that jar oh, warm big. up before you open yep. it. Otherwise, the air from the room will be sucked down into the jar, and that air will have some moisture. That moisture will hit the inside of the cold glass and form little raindrops. And so your once dry seeds are now wet. 
And so it doesn't take very long. Just let them sit for 20 to 40 minutes after you bring them out. But you can't have instant access if you do that. But that's a great way to store them. And yeah. and theoretically, the colder you get them, you know, the longer they'll last. You know, what yeah. you don't want to do also is, is vacuum pack them. You don't want right. to try to suck all the air out of them. They're, they're embryos. Why, they're why is that? You know, they just need a little bit of air. And there's enough in your in your glass jar in the freezer to last them for a long, long, long time. You just don't want yeah. to suck the, what little air is in there out. And also, I've heard people trying to pack them in nitrogen. Nitrogen-packed seeds, probably not a good thing, huh? Yeah, they don't breathe nitrogen. They yeah, don't do that. Carbon, carbon dioxide. Yeah. Cat from Seeds of Embolic is on, listening from Ontario, Canada. Uh, she said, I've heard that you can put a small package of dried milk in with the seeds to absorb, mo- absorb moisture. Uh, that would probably like help also. Uh, yeah. I've had people put uh, rice also. Oh, yes. Uh, which is pretty dry because that'll yeah. absorb moisture. And so, yeah, these are all things you can you can do. You uh, know, also remember that seeds will do that to each other. They'll equalize the moisture in there. They'll all take on a little bit and then, but, and bring down the humidity probably, but they'll all be okay still. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? Yeah. They're here to take care of us. Uh, let's see here. So here's an advanced question for you. This is from Anne from Halifax. How can one preserve seeds that degrade very quickly, such as Angelica? I've also heard that neem seeds also degrade very quickly uh, and then she says which may or may not last to the next season and she goes on to say this is especially relevant when buying the seeds in the first place yeah so you know some general things about seeds is that it seems as though and these are these are generalizations that i that uh, from my own experience the harder round small seeds last longer and when you and so the opposite is true for seeds that are flat and flaky and large, you know, that have different dispersal devices and things like that. They're not only more mm-hmm. fragile, you can actually just break them in your hand, but they just seem to last longer. So that's what I would call, you know, angelica seeds might be something like that. It's in the celery family. They, they don't have wings on them, but they're... Their larger seeds, like parsley, doesn't last as long. Onion seeds are known to go faster. You know, keep them cool, dark, and dry, you know, and start with fresh seeds. That's uh, that's all I know about. There are, you know, the National Seed Storage Laboratory, they use liquid nitrogen. And there are all sorts of tricks and folktales about how to get things to last longer. But I've never really found that any of them worked, at least for me on a on my market scale for my small seed company. So... You know, I just never sold seeds that were old. And so, you know, if you're buying seeds from someone, ask them how fresh they are. You know, the lily family is famous for this, that I swear, you know, that a sago lily seeds, uh, Calicortis is the genus, that those seeds almost have to fall out of their own pods and plant themselves on the ground to grow. That if you try to store them at all, they just don't, you yes. know, they degrade so fast or something happens. Maybe they get traumatized. I don't know. And so, you know, I don't know if there's a way around that kind of a problem, especially yeah. with white flaky seeds like that. But, you know, so ask, always ask, collect your own seeds. And if you're collecting seeds in the wild, from wild plants, and there's a lot of seeds that are like that, bring them home and plant them immediately. You know, put them on the ground at the same time they would fall naturally to the ground. 
And whenever I've done that, I've just had better results anyway. Perfect. So one of the things that uh, we do is with this this uh, interview tonight or this conversation tonight is we put it on our podcast. And I mentioned that Kat was here, Kat Granger from Seeds of Embolic. Uh, I just want to do a shout out to her. She was our uh, podcast number 418. If you go to urbanfarmpodcast.com, you can find her on January 26th in our podcast. And that is Kismet barking in the background. So hello, Kismet. Next question. Uh, Denise says, if you store seeds in the freezer and let them warm up to avoid condensation, but only need a few of the seeds, does it damage them to refreeze them? No. No, as long as you close up the jar on a dry day, <laughs> you know, you're not changing things too much. I mean, I wouldn't make it a habit of it, you know, like every day, reach in and get a few seeds and then reach in. I mean, you know, freezers should be considered long-term storage. You know, I put my, if I'm going to put seeds in a freezer, they're in there for six months or a year at least. And then I have all my working seeds the ones I'm going to be planting in the packets I need to open or reopen, you know, they're not stored that way because I'm going to use them up. And, and seeds at room temperature, you know, that uh, that uh, uh, stay in a normal home will last um, years probably, most of them. I mean, yeah, that's what we've been. Like that's what we've been finding is that uh, you know these seeds that we've been storing for the Great American Seed Up, we've been doing every couple of years. We've been doing you know germination tests on them, and have found that they stay pretty stable. I mean, our our last germ test yeah. from seeds that I bought six years ago were up in the ninety plus percent range. Well, that's the story. It makes a believer out of you after a while. I mean, 28 years doing uh, high altitude gardens, and I had 400 varieties of things, and I was just constantly surprised, if not shocked, at how well the seeds did after even decades, you know, of storage. So, yeah, more more often, I you know, it's I can't even think of a time where where I was totally disappointed that everything died. I don't know if I've ever had that experience of my own seeds. I mean, I've, I'm going, we're doing about 400 germ tests right now for a, a great seedsman that passed away a few years ago, Ampitu. And uh, we're trying, and some of his seeds were 15 to 20 years old and they were in buckets and some, mm-hmm. I guess they weren't stored very well. And some of those are dead. We're getting 0%. I'm not sure oh, that if wow. we didn't go back and do them again, and give them longer or grab handfuls from the middles of the buckets. We wouldn't find some that are alive. But, you know, it's pretty rare to find something that where everything is dead. It's just nature is that way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Dennis from New York says, can you tell me about the heritage grain trials and seed steward participation? That could be a long conversation, Dennis. Why don't you, why don't you point them to the website? I will. RockyMountSeeds.org, and if you go under resources, you can pull down. The thing I would do first is pull down under resources, and it says uh, search directory for both seed stewards and for heritage grain trials. And search the directory. Don't put any criteria in. Just get that page up and hit search, and then uh, the, a button will come up that says map map this list and map it. And then all of a sudden, before you will come a dot for everybody that is in each of those programs that we have going. And we have almost 300 seed stewards and 100, more than 100 now, in our heritage grain trials. And these are people that have just volunteered. 
We'll uh, help you find seeds. We'll send you seeds. You can click on uh, the uh, location of anybody in those directories on the map and get their contact information, pull up the list of what they're saving and what they promise to share. And so that's really all it takes to be in either of those programs. We do, there is a fee to get into the Heritage Grain Program, uh, but then you get access to over 300 rare heritage and ancient grains that we've sourced that will just make it easier for you to get them. So uh, join in. We'll send you, after the grain trials, we'll send you even a little manual to help you start to learn how to keep data on. And then all we really ask you to do is share this as much back as we give you. And that way we can keep the program going so other people can get involved. And, and I'll just end with this. The, the goal of that program is to make our region of the Rocky Mountain West uh, uh, self-reliant in its own production someday again. That we want the seeds for the Rocky Mountains, for our region, to come from our region. Just think, make sense biologically as well as economically, as well as maybe politically. Yeah. So Janice from Cottonwood says, more on the curly top. There are four varieties developed in the 70s by University of Washington, Rosa, Columbia, Ropac, and Salad Master. But the only source I have found is Sand Hill Preservation Center in Iowa. I have grown out all four here in Cottonwood, but they are just not great tasting tomatoes. I would like to get more gardeners growing these to see if we can selectively develop some with better taste and terroir. Any suggestions wow. on how to get the get more growers? You know, you should actually under Rocky Mountain Seed. It would be it would be easy. Listen to me. Um, probably not so easy, but that's something you could take on at Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Oh yeah, and James, uh, I'll make sure you get signed up on our seed streams. And this is the project you want to do tonight. These are the varieties of river and how people can find the seeds because this is the kind of worthy aspects that we need to be working on. I'm not so sure that there aren't curly top resistant varieties that do taste okay. At least better to start with. And then all we need yeah. to do is grow them out and save seeds only from the ones that we really, really like. So, um, Why don't you go ahead and tell them quickly about Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance? Uh, grassroots um, Seed Network. You can find it Rocky Mountain Seeds Girl dot org. You can sign up free for our newsletter, become a member. We like uh, we've got lots of folks signing up for $5 a month, one of those auto-pay things. And uh, we just try to inspire, teach, network uh, the seed savers in the Rocky Mountain West to reach our goal to have all our seeds come from here the way they used to. So uh, it's a great group of people. And every other year we have a, a summit. You can come and party with us. Yeah, there you go. So it, it sounds like we're losing you pretty bad. So I'm just going to mute you for the moment. Bill, and I'll wrap this up. So thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, we were just talking with Bill McDormand of RockyMountainSeeds.org. They've got grain school coming up here in this summer in Albuquerque. Uh, sounds like uh, a great, great, fun three, four-day or uh, adventure for anybody that wants to grow grains. That includes growing grains for uh, for beers and like that. And uh, you can check out uh, Seed Saving Hacked for our free webinar on seed saving and all about seed saving. And thank you for joining us this evening. And uh, we will catch you on the flip side. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.